That we were worshiping earlier, and there was a, hy a hymn that we were singing. I don't know if you um, you'd heard it before, but the, the the one where it says, "When sorrows like um, sorrows like sea billows roll, whatever my lot that has taught me to say it as well, it is well with my soul." Some of you may well well know, but for those who don't, it just I was just reminded as we were singing it that the guy that wrote that hymn is a guy called Horatio Spafford. He wrote it in the 1800s, and uh, he wrote it after family tragedy. So his his, um, his wife and his daughters, his four daughters, were on a boat on their way over to Europe from America. And the boat collided with another boat. And his four daughters drowned. Uh, his wife managed to survive, but his four daughters drowned. And he uh, got on a boat as soon as he could and went over to, to meet up with his wife. And um, the story goes that it was when he was at the point where he lost his, his girls that he wrote the words of that song, when sorrows like sea billows roll. Whatever my lot that has taught me to say, it is well, it is well with my soul. Isn't it, doesn't it just give those words just a weight when you understand that they're written of a, from a heart of worship from a place like that? Anyway, that's absolutely nothing to do with what I was going to talk about. But um, for, uh, uh, like most of you, I imagine, um, after the Queen died, I spent a lot of time watching TV and uh, for the sort of next week and a half, had what felt to me like the most British week of my entire life, and I loved it. And um, one of the things that particularly jumped out at me as express, you know, gloriously British was the five-mile orderly queue that formed um, for people to pay their respects to the Queen. And there were, there were all sorts of little news segments that came about the queue. One was David Beckham cementing himself as a national treasure uh, by queuing with the rest of us. Um, and then there was the other end of the spectrum, the controversy around Phil and Holly. Did they, did they jump the queue or didn't they jump the queue? Who do we believe? Um, and uh, it's only after reflecting afterwards that I've, I've just been struck in a new way by the tsunami of moral outrage that was expressed, particularly on social media, aimed at these cuddly, kind of cuddly TV presenters um, who may or may not have skipped the queue. You can be the judge. But uh, it, was, it was, again, incredibly British. The world is literally falling apart around us, but we're going to dedicate three days of news to these two people queue-jumping. Um, and, uh, and there were two things about it. One was, on the one hand, it was just this, this wave of vindictiveness that, that these two poor people got uh, targeted with. And then on the other hand, I thought, it actually, it doesn't surprise me anymore. Um, because we probably have all recognized some, a trend that's accelerated in pace in the last, I, I would say, five years, um, that uh, where it used to be the case that it was three strikes and you're out. And now how it works in our culture is one strike and we want to kill you. Uh, it's, um, you know, we, we, the way that we talk about, it's called cancel culture. The way that we talk about people is not that you have made a mistake, but it's you, because you've made a mistake, are a mistake. It's, uh, it's not that you've done something bad, it's that you are evil now. And um, the, the, we can kind of joke about it, but the reality, the implications of this are actually quite serious. So I've been talking to a lot of younger leaders, and many of them, to be honest, are frightened of stepping into leadership. And one of the reasons they are is because they're afraid if they make a mistake, they're going to get lynched. Um, I, I was hearing yesterday just of a survey that had been done about young people and how many of them feel anxious about the words that they express because they're fearful if I say something wrong, 
um, it's going to be it's going to be held against me. If I go against what everybody else seems to think, then I'll be I'll be um, they'll be coming for me. And they're even worried, some of them, that the words that I said in year seven are now going to come back to haunt me in year 11, because that's how it works. It's not just that we'll cancel you for what you're doing now. We'll cancel you for what you did 20 years ago. Um, and none of that is to say that we don't hold people to account for things that are wrong. But it's got me thinking, this, this trend and the culture, that we're, the water that we're swimming in, as it were, how would Jesus live in a council culture? Um, one of the things that I wonder is he probably wouldn't have chosen Peter to be the head of the church. Because if there's anyone who says stupid things, it's our friend Pete the disciple. Uh, whether it's like, you know, here we are, I'm going to build a, a tent for you, Moses and Elijah. Um, or it's, it's the, you know, the out, outrageous and wrong, I've never met that man, I don't know him. But Pete seems that every time he opened his mouth, put his foot in it and he'd be cancelled. I'm not sure he'd last five minutes today. Um, how would Jesus treat, um, just to pick an example, some kind of elected official who made uh, decisions about taxes that caused other people distress and concern? I don't know if you can think of anybody like that today, but um, somebody who's in a position where they make decisions about taxes, how, would, how do we treat people like that in our culture? How would Jesus have done it? Well, we've got Zacchaeus the tax collector, who's an example of that, someone who oppressed um, people. And, and what Jesus does is he calls Zacchaeus out by calling him by name from a tree and saying, I want to come and have lunch with you. Um, it's not to say that he approved of what Zacchaeus was doing, but that's how he responded to him when everybody else really hated him. Um, how would Jesus treat uh, a woman, for example, who doesn't live up to the moral standards of today's society? Well, again, we don't have to look hard in the scripture to find examples of that. There's a woman who's caught in adultery and the men drag her in front of Jesus and they're all there wanting to stone her to death. And of course, Jesus says, all right, the one of you that hasn't sinned, you can throw the first stone. And so really the story of the woman caught in adultery is actually the story of the men caught with stones in their hands. Um, how, might, you know, how might it work today if we said, okay, you can, you can tweet about somebody's mistake, you can express outrage in a post about somebody else's mishap, um, but only if you've never made a mistake first. How much quieter might social media be if that was the standard that we, that we set ourselves? Um, are we the people caught with uh, posts in our hands? So how would Jesus treat a cancel culture? I think he would, he would burst into it with mercy. Mercy and justice. It's not at the expense of justice, but it is mercy. And the reality is, when we talk about the rise of a cancel culture, what we're really talking about is the fading away of forgiveness. And forgiveness, we as the church, we are to be a merciful people. This is to be a family full of forgiveness, and we'll need to be if we're going to be a good family. And we're to express forgiveness to the world around us. The problem is, that is a really nice sentiment. And I, I imagine even as I say it, we're all thinking, what a lovely idea. Wouldn't it be nice to be a forgiving people? Um, forgiveness is a lovely idea. The reality, though, is that when we have somebody to actually forgive, it becomes one of the hardest things in the world. It's not easy. And there's a story where um, Peter comes to Jesus, I suspect having just been upset by somebody else, and he asks him a question. This is in Matthew chapter 18, verse 21. Then Peter came to Jesus and asked, Lord, 
How many times shall I forgive my brother or sister who sins against me? Don't you just imagine someone's just done something to him? And then he says, up to seven times? And according to the standards of the time, that's really actually very generous. Up to seven times? And then Jesus responds, Jesus answered, I tell you, not seven times, but 70 times seven. And um, what happens is Jesus sets this bar for forgiveness for us so high. And, And personally, at times, I find that so depressing because when people have hurt me, all right, you, but that is, that is not the first thing that I want to do. Um, I remember a number of years ago now, but it still um, comes back to me at times, that there were, when I was really new to leadership, there was a younger leader that I was investing in. I was just trying to encourage him. I believed in him, um, and I came to really trust him and respect him. And then there came a morning where he, he just said to me, Andy, are you free uh, from, to get together? And I said, Sure. Um, and we met in this room in the in warehouse next door, and he brought a friend with him. And uh, pretty quickly into the conversation, I realized that he was just, he was, he was going for me. And he came with a long list of things that he wasn't happy about me and the way that I led. Uh, he said things to me like, you're aloof and you're distant and you don't care about people. And he gave me all this stuff. And I was, personally, I was just, I was devastated by it. And uh, I went to some, you know, I went to Mike and and some of the pastors and I just said, is any of this true? And they said, "Um, where's the effect of, well, you do have a lot of issues, but in this case, no. Um, You know, we'll tell you when there's something, but it's not that, Andy, it's not that. But even so, even with them saying that truth to me, it winded me. You know, when something punches you in the stomach and you can't actually breathe for a while, that's what it felt like for a few months. I just lost all my confidence and it... Uh, it devastated me. And what I wanted to do is I wanted to get revenge. I wanted to pay back. Isn't that what you want to do when someone hurts you? Um, A more recent example for us is Beth and I and the family, we went away on holiday uh, to Norfolk just in the summer. And uh, we decided to start our family holiday in the traditional way that Beth and I usually start our family holiday, which is by having a massive argument. Um, (laughs) I don't know if any of you guys do that, but that's how we tend to roll. So there we are, beautiful Norfolk. You know, the lovely scenery, the beaches, the countryside, and perfect place for a shouting match. So we just, we just really, and I think what it was, was as it usually is, we just, in the run-up to a holiday, we're so busy, and we're so going flat out, trying to get everything ready, trying to finish things off at work, and all of that sort of stuff, that it, in truth, what we had done is we just neglected each other, and we, you know, we just hadn't been giving the other what, what they needed. And we'd both become, as a result of that, a little resentful of it. Um, And so it all came to a head. We had this huge argument. I'd love to tell you that then we sat down half an hour later and resolved it all. But that's not what happened. For two or three days, we were like really frosty, passive aggressive, you know, channeling our anger through the children. All those really healthy things that you should do as a couple. Um, And so that's how the summer holiday began. And eventually we did sit down and we did really sort of work it out. But it was, it, was, it was hard. And when you're resenting someone or someone's hurt you, you know, you like Peter. How many times do I have to forgive? And Jesus' response to me when I asked him that question was to show me this scripture and basically say, Andy, how many times? Every time. And to forgive is not the same thing as um, to ignore what's happened. Nor is it to say that the relationship's going to pick off where it left off. Sometimes 
You know, forgiveness is about past actions, but sometimes you need to work at building trust for a future relationship. So it's bearing those things in mind. At the same time, he doesn't give us wiggle room. He says every time. And then Jesus goes on to teach us, as he so often does, through a story. So this is the story he tells. Therefore, the kingdom of heaven is like a king who wanted to settle accounts with his servants. As he began the settlement, a man who owed him 10,000 bags of gold was brought to him. Now, just to give some context to that, 10,000 bags of gold is an astronomical amount of money. Jesus may well have said something like, a man who owed him 5 billion pounds was brought to him. That's not exaggerating it. That's lowballing it. A man who who owed him 5 billion pounds was brought to him. Since he was not able to pay, the master ordered that he and his wife and his children and all he had be sold to repay the debt. At this, the servant fell on his knees before him. Be patient with me, he begged, and I will pay back everything. The servant's master took pity on him, cancelled the debt, and let him go. So the first part of this story, what Jesus is telling us, is he's telling us the good news of Christianity. Uh, He's explaining to us what's happened when we come to know him, um, because the way it works is we owe God a debt, all those things we, we haven't done, all those things we should have done. And what he does when he comes on the cross and he says, it is finished, is he cancels that debt. So, but it's trying to imagine our way into the story is helpful. So I picture it a little bit like um, about 10 years ago, Beth and I were able to buy our first house in Watford. And it was a little terrace house. Um, It was easier to buy back then than it is now. But even so, we had to get a 35-year mortgage out in order to get the house. And For both of us, we felt like we're basically going to be dead by the time we own this house, but it's the only way, so we'll do it. So uh, we get this mortgage out, and imagine if, a little while later, the manager of Nationwide rings me up and says, hey, Andy, uh, Mr. Croft, can you come on down to Nationwide? There's a a bit of an issue. And I head down to the bank, and I'm there in one of those little cubicles they have at Nationwide, and the bank manager looks at me and says, listen, there's a problem with your credit, and basically, we need you to repay the mortgage today. And um, what I found with having a mortgage is it just, it can weigh on you a little bit. Um, if, you've, if you've ever had one, you'll know that you go into your little online bank account and you look at your current account, it says, oh, you've got a little bit of money in the current account. You think, I'm doing all right. Until you scroll down, it's like, here's your mortgage, minus thousands and thousands and thousands of pounds. Anyway, so you, you feel the weight of that, but then somebody puts the pressure of that on you in, in, a, in a sort of 24-hour period and you, and you crush. How, how am I going to feel in a moment like that? What would I do to that manager of Nationwide? I would get down on my knees and I would beg him. And I would say, please, Mr. Bank Manager, please, you don't understand. I've got a wife. We've got a baby on the way. My wife gets annoyed when I can't put the bins out. I'm going to have to go back and tell her we can't even afford to have bins because we haven't got a house anymore. This is not going to work out well. Seriously, you've got, to, you've got to help me, right? And what I'd say to him is, give me more time, 35 years more time, and I will get you your money. And imagine I say that to the bank manager and this look of compassion just comes over his face. And he says, stand up, Mr. Croft. He says, I've decided to do something I've never done before. What I'm going to do is I'm going to cancel your mortgage. You don't have to pay it back. Let's just call it even. What would I do? What would you do to a bank manager who said that to you right now? (laughs) Particularly right now, okay? Instead of you rising, we're going to call it even, we're going to call it. What would you do? I would snog the bank manager. (laughs) I would, I would get up and I would stand on top of the table. I'd throw my arms in the air and I'd say, yes, nationwide. Yes, I knew there was a reason I picked you. Right? I'd run down the street. Why? Why? Because in a single moment, he has just cancelled 
an entire lifetime's worth of debt. Now, the astonishing good news is this. When you say yes to Jesus, what he does on the cross is he cancels himself out that he might cancel our sin out. In a single moment, when he says it is finished, another way of putting that is it's paid, it's done. A, a whole lifetime's worth of debt was set free from him. That's the gospel. So Jesus, he answers Pete's question by just reminding him of that. And then he goes on. At this, um, it says, well, but when, sorry, verse 28, but when that servant, this is the guy who's just had his five billion pounds cancelled, when that servant went out, he found one of his fellow servants who owed him a hundred silver coins, who couldn't have maybe 5,000 pounds. He grabbed him and began to choke him. Pay back what you owe me, he demanded. His fellow servant fell to his knees and begged him, be patient with me and I'll pay it back. But he refused. Instead, he went off and had the man thrown into prison until he could pay the debt. When the other servants saw what had happened, they were outraged and went on social media to express it. No, it doesn't say that. It says, and went and told the master everything that had happened. Then the master called the servant in. You wicked servant, he said. I cancelled all that debt of yours. I cancelled your debt, not you. I cancelled all that debt of yours because you begged me to. Shouldn't you have had mercy on your fellow servant just as I had on you? In his anger, the master handed him over to the jailers to be tortured until he should pay back all he owed, which is basically forever because you're never going to pay back five billion. And then Jesus finishes it with this little punch. This is how my heavenly father will treat each of you unless you forgive your brother or sister from your heart. Mic drop, walk away. I thought his stories were meant to make me feel better. This one's not, this is not comfortable. Uh, what, what do we discover from it? There's, there's a few things. One of the things that I think is really plain in the story is it shows us that forgiveness, to forgive another, is expensive. It's costly. It's, to receive forgiveness is free, but if you're the person who has to give it to somebody else, there's a big cost that comes with that. Um, and, you know, for example, if, we were, if I was driving my car down the street here and you crashed into me, and uh, let's say you did 500 pounds worth of damage, and I was to get out of the car and say, don't worry, I forgive you, I forgive this debt, you don't need to pay it, just make sure you tell your friends that's what I did. Right? If, if I did that, then, then what happens is that 500 pounds worth of damage doesn't just disappear into the air, what's happened is, instead of you paying it, I'm going to pay it. So the cost is mine. And, and when we are hurt and wounded by people, and I don't know what it is in your context that comes to mind here, for some of us, it's the big stuff. You know, that there are people who have abused us. There are people who we trusted who didn't treat us in the way that they should have done. There are relationships where we, we have walked away more broken than we were when we started them. For some of us, we've had our children say things to us that we probably will never forget. For others of us, we've had colleagues who used us and climbed over us. Well, whatever it is, um, what we want to do, isn't it, in a, in a moment like that and with a wound like that, is we want to pay back. And what it is to forgive is to, in a way, die to ourselves. It's to give up that right to claim what is owed to us. It's to let it go. And what happens is that's expensive because we are absorbing the debt. 
So the cost of forgiveness is high. But here's the other thing the story makes really plain to us. The cost of not forgiving is even higher. And so the servant, had he forgiven the guy that owed him the 100 silver coins, the 5K, had he forgiven that, that would have been expensive. That cost him 100 silver coins. But the cost of not doing it is he ends up thrown into jail. And um, one of the things that happens when we, when we refuse to forgive others, and it's understandable when we do, because what they've done is wrong. They shouldn't have done it. What they've done is painful. What they've done has caused consequences in our lives, and it's ended up, means some of us, we've ended up in positions we, we should never have been. But when we forgive, refuse to forgive, then what happens is we end up in jail, in a jail of our own fashioning, as it were. It's been said that um, choosing not to forgive somebody is, is like drinking poison and then waiting for the other person to die. What happens is the bitterness just begins to eat us up. Nelson Mandela has been regarded around the world as just an incredible human being. And one of the reasons for that is because even though he was unjustly imprisoned as he fought against apartheid, he was in jail for 21 years. And in his autobiography, he talks about how his, um, you know, this moment where he held his, his daughter for the first time in 16 years. Can you imagine being separated from your child for 16 years because you were fighting an unjust racist system? Well, that's what happened to him. And in that place, uh, and the reason why he's so regarded is because rather than growing in bitterness and resentment, he chose to live in forgiveness. It became known that place as the jail as Mandela's University because it was there that he taught others it's better to forgive than to hold a grudge. When Mandela eventually became the president of South Africa, he had his jailer as his guest of honor at the inauguration. And what happened is in that prison, somehow he stayed free. And what can happen to us if we're not careful particularly because of the culture that's pushing us in one direction, is that we can walk around thinking we're free, but we are in fact in jail. And the way to find real forgiveness from wounds, real freedom from wounds rather, the path to that is to forgive. And think about the sort of person that you want to be uh, 10 years down the track. You know, the, the Christians that I admire the most now um, the, the, the elderly Christians that I really look up to are the ones that have got to that point and they've been hurt along the way because we're all going to get hurt. To think you can walk through the world and not get hurt is like thinking you can walk through a field of stinging nettles and not get stung. We're broken and we hurt each other. Um, but the, the, the ones that I really admire and I think I want to be like you are the ones that they've made it almost to the end and they're joyful and they are tender-hearted and they're compassionate. Because I think, just in the years that I've lived already, I think, gosh, it must be so easy to become jaded, to become bitter, to become resentful and, and cynical. And yet they've somehow managed to get there and still be gentle and kind and loving and compassionate. How do they do that? They learn to forgive. At least in part, it's that. When you've got a wound and you're trying to work out, do I really let this go? Do I really forgive? Another question to ask is, what decision do I think I would have wished I'd made five years from now? If I was five years in the future and I looked back on this moment, what decision do I wish I would have made? And always for me, the answer is, I wish I would have forgiven. I wish I would have let it go. 
The follow-on question, and this is the question to look at as we finish, is, but how? I want to forgive, but as we've said already, it's costly, and it's hard, and I don't know how. Um, a few things that I think help with this one. One is to, to really enjoy our own forgiveness that we have received. Even as we were just singing just a few moments ago, my sin, not in whole, but the, not in part, but the whole, is nailed to the cross. To, to, to savor it. Um, you know, the servant, as he left that room, it staggers me that the first thing he does when he finds the other guy is demand what was owed to him. His mindset, even though he just received so much, was about what was owed to him. And so often I've caught myself with a similar mindset. Though I have received so much from you, God, I wander around this world getting cross at the things that people owe me. And the antidote to that is, is to take time to savor and to enjoy the forgiveness he gives to us and also to consider what it costs him. In a moment, we're going to be sharing communion. When you come to get the bread, what someone will say to you is they'll break a bit of the bread off and they'll say, this is his body broken for you. They'll hand you the cup and they'll say, this is the blood of Jesus shed for you. This is what it cost him. Not some economics, not some money, but his very life. Enjoy that. And then what happens is I think it becomes easier to give forgiveness away. Uh, another thing that helps with forgiveness, I think, is to practice on the quote-unquote small things. 90% of the forgiveness that we need to release is for little things. And, uh, you know, I don't know about you, but I'm great at you know, just forgiving people left, right, and center. I definitely don't count up how many times Beth has done this or how many times I've got an email from this person. Or, You know, we, 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 actually, most of us are pretty good at keeping score, aren't we? And uh, what I've been trying to do recently is, is, is just look at Jesus dying on a cross. And for the people that are putting him to death, he's praying. And he's praying for those who are killing him. Father, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. Stephen, the first martyr in the church, he, as he's being stoned to death, he cries out to the Lord, Lord, don't hold this sin against them. That's the standard. That is the bar, right? And then I look in the mirror and I think, oh my word, I'm struggling to forgive somebody for a slightly cross email. I feel like I have a long way to go before I'm going to get to that point. And, and what I've realized is the thing not to do is just to say, I'm not going to sweat the small stuff. Your little things can't hurt me because they do hurt me. And I, and I am wounded. And I don't know if you're thicker skin than I am, but I'm pretty sensitive. So stuff does go deep. And what I've realized, that the, the way to approach it, for me anyway, has at least become, I'm going to see this as an opportunity. I've been hurt here, um, but this is an opportunity for me to practice forgiveness. And then maybe when something bigger comes along, I'll be a little bit more equipped to practice forgiveness with that. So I want to practice on the small things. Not pretend they don't matter. Acknowledge that in truth, even though it hurts my pride, they do matter to me. But then I'll just do the choice, the work of laying it down. And uh, here's a final thought on giving forgiveness away. I used to think it was about an emotion and a feeling. I'll forgive you when I feel like I'm ready. The truth is, it's a decision before it's an emotion. And, and what it is, is that we say, I am going to decide to forgive you for this, though I don't feel like doing it. 
What I feel like doing is the opposite of it, paying you back. Forgiveness is not fair. What's fair is to pay them back. But to, to forgive, C.S. Lewis put it like this, to be a Christian is to forgive the inexcusable in others because God has forgiven the inexcusable in you. I'm gonna forgive the inexcusable in my child, the inexcusable in my friend, the inexcusable in my colleague, not because they deserve it, they don't, but because he has forgiven the inexcusable in me. And there is something that happens when we resolve to do that where he helps us, we don't do it by ourselves. And uh, one of my favorite stories, I'll finish with this, is the story of Corrie Ten Boom, who, um, if you know, she was arrested by the Gestapo and the Nazis in World War II. She was a Dutch Christian in her 50s at the time. And she, her sister, and her father ended up in jail and ultimately in a concentration camp. The reason they were arrested is because they were sheltering and hiding the Jews from the Nazis. And what happened is within 10 days of being arrested, Corrie's dad died in jail. And then her sister lasted a lot longer, but eventually she too died. And in the hiding place, Corrie writes of some of the horrors that they, they experienced in the concentration camps. And then Corrie survived to the end of the war and she was released. And then there was a time when she was preaching in a church in Germany. And she said, after I finished the sermon, I was walking to the back of the church and someone walked towards me and I recognized him as one of the guards from the concentration camp. And she said, the moment that I saw him, I had a flashback to his face laughing at us as they stripped us naked, enjoying our humiliation, enjoying having that control and that power over us. And he came up to her, this former concentration camp guard, and he said, he shook her, he went out to shake her hand, he reached out and he said, it's so good, isn't it, Fraulein, that Jesus' blood covers all of our sins. It's so good, isn't it? And he was smiling. And, and Corrie just said, you know what? This, this, this anger rose up in her. And the last thing that she wanted to do was to take his hand. But she felt like the Lord said to her, take it. And she had a battle inside, as anyone would, in that sort of position. And in the end, she just felt like he said, you have to do it. So she made a decision and she reached out and she took his hand. And she said, as she did that, as she reached out in that moment, she felt the Holy Spirit fill her and the Spirit flow through her arm towards this. And she felt this wave of love for him. And she says in her story, um, I realized in that moment that Jesus, he doesn't just give us the command to forgive. Also, when we step out to obey him, he empowers us to do it. How do we forgive that which seems to us to be unforgivable by the grace of God? We choose to do it, and then he comes and he helps us. We are to be a people of mercy, a forgiving people in a culture that wants to cancel everyone because he canceled our sin. <laughs>